they say I'm the tail end of Generation X, but I'm really an Oregon Trail Generation kid, as I posted on Twitter. We were watching like the Smurfs and He-Man while Dave was rocking out in his hairband or whatever with the big yeah. kid. The 80s were my, my time to shine there when I was growing up. So, yeah. Yeah, the 80s were literally when I was growing up. Even for me, I was born in 75. So, yeah, I was that a, much. But you were gener you're late Generation X. Yeah, I think. I'm like a young, I always thought of myself as Generation X. Most of the Gen X people were older than me, like maybe five to 10 years older than me. But still, slacker, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Gen X slacker is. Like you're, I guess you're a solid millennial, right, Jose? Or are you? I'm an elder millennial. Yes. Elder millennial. Okay. Cause like, I just can't relate to you. You guys had Pokemon and stuff. Like we didn't have Pokemon. Pogs. <laughs> Pogs were around. We had Pogs. We had magic cards. I didn't play magic cards. Those were for nerds like Adam Rasmussen. And from uh, the devil, right? Possibly. Like <laughs> Greetings and welcome to this edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. I'm Mike Lewis, the managing editor of wherepeteris.com, and today David Lafferty and I are joined by Jose Rodriguez. Jose is from Santa Maria, California. He is a junior high school history teacher, and he is the co-host of Conversation on Tap. And both David and I have appeared on Conversation on Tap, as has Paul Fahey. And it was actually my very first appearance on a podcast in my life. Jose is married to his wife, Christina, and they have a daughter. Her name is Frankie Marie. Welcome to the podcast, Jose. It is so good to be here. I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. And I have to say, <laughs> It's one of those things where when you were a guest on our podcast, you mentioned to us at the time that the following day you would be recording your very first one. So I'm glad that you were able to get your, your trial run on our humble little podcast. It was a great conversation. And since our guest is from Conversations on Tap, why don't you tell us what you're drinking right now, Jose? I was just drinking a white wine, a Sauvignon Blanc from Tobin James. Normally I have a lager or an IPA, but I haven't had a chance to run to the liquor store. So today we're drinking some delicious California wine. Awesome. From the home state. David, are, are you, what are you drinking? I'm drinking black instant coffee, but uh, I know it's weird, but I, it actually helps me fall asleep sometimes because uh, I can't fall asleep if I have a caffeine headache. That's how bad I am with caffeine. I've been drinking it far too long and far too much. So well, and I am drinking uh, municipal tap water from a 32-ounce yellow plastic tumbler. So, cheers. Cheers. Salute. <laughs> Salute. Before we begin this episode of Peter's Field Hospital, I would like to make a special request. If you appreciate our work at Where Peter Is, and you've gotten something out of our articles and podcasts please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that enables fans or patrons to make a monthly contribution to support content creators. 
Running where Peter is is not free. Our apostolate has grown to the point where I have begun to work on it full time. If we are going to succeed, we need your help. If you would like to support our work on Patreon, please click on one of the links to our Patreon page or on the button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. Thank you very much for your generosity. We can't do it without you. Jose, like David and I, is a Catholic, and I guess we met each other through Catholic Facebook, and then it bled into Catholic Twitter. And what I didn't, I didn't know Jose's background at the time, but Where Peter Is had been going on for a while, and David had already come on board to Where Peter Is, and we're writing about this polarization in the church, and reactionaries and conspiracy theorists and all these debates. And first of all, I want to apologize to you, Jose, for, for helping to introduce you to this world. But you are a student <laughs> of human behavior, it seems. And I guess yeah. like a lot of people, it's just once you latch on to that Catholic thing and you've got a nose for news and a nose for narratives, you kind of take to these things like a fish to water. And I think as long as you aren't obsessing over them too much, I think they, they can really add a little bit of color and culture to your background. Start talking a little bit about your faith journey, your upbringing, and how that led into podcasting and then eventually open the door to this Catholic social media world. Yeah, so I was not a cradle Catholic. When I was born, my parents actually had no faith whatsoever. So I was running around the streets like a hellion, a heathen. But eventually my parents did get divorced. Tragically, unfortunately. It's probably for the best, actually, honestly. But we were then raised by my grandparents, my grandmother, and my grandfather. And it was my grandmother who instilled in me my faith, my Catholic faith. She would take me to church. She would catechize in the home it was annoying at times how she would relate everything to god or this or that event would would inspire a word or scripture and everything would be related back to jesus it was really annoying especially as i became a teenager but at the same time this was very effective catechesis from the home and, and i was even in catholic school for a number of years before going to public school i would attend ccd you know catechism classes. And my grandmother was even my CCD teacher. But when I got to high school, I was that typical cliched teenager who was rebellious, didn't want to, didn't want to accept the faith that I had been given, the faith I had received. So it was like, oh, let me listen to punk rock, wear black, be depressed and have this negative F the world sort of mentality. And my grandmother really didn't have a lot of patience for that. So she said, no, you're going back to church and I'm going to put you in youth group. And, and she sat me down with the youth group leader. His name was Jim. And he ran through his testimony. Very powerful. Deeply affected me. And so I thought, hey, why not? I'll give this another shot. I'll give Catholicism another crack here. And so I, I ended up going to the religious education conference in Anaheim. Because we're just a hop, skip, and a jump away from there in the uh, Los Angeles Archdiocese. And so we go to Mass with Cardinal Mahoney. There are all these speakers like Father Barron, 
And it was quite the experience being with all these young people, all these teenagers. But what really changed my life was, funny enough, praise and worship. Thousands of teenagers in this arena, hands lifted on high and singing, Our God is an Awesome God. And for whatever reason, that just deeply affected me. And I think I got a little teary-eyed, but maybe I tried to you know, played off of something else. But I think looking back, honestly, I, I think I was getting teary-eyed. And I did, at that point, I think, have an authentic conversion experience, gave my life over to Christ. I really did get involved in youth ministry, and I was in confirmation. I was then the, the Christian kid who listened to punk rock and wore black. But then after high school, I move out, I'm in college, working two, three jobs. and it, again, stereotypically just fell out of the faith. In my 20s, work this roller coaster of, I'm in, the, I'm in it, I'm out, I'm in it, I'm out. And it, I just couldn't fully commit because I was working multiple jobs. I was in college and in all these relationships, it was like a tractor beam trying to pull me in and I would pull away. But long story short, it was when I got to be 30, started dating the gal who's now my wife and she's non-denominational and she would really encourage me to pray get into the word and actually because she's not a catholic she's a non-denominational christian challenged me in catholic doctrine which then encouraged me to read up on my faith check out we're on fire watch these taylor marshall videos and catholic answers and steve ray and all these people scott hahn and educate myself in all these apologetics and it was at that point where I was really, I think, firm in my faith, recommitted myself, had an, what I would consider another conversion. And I, yeah, it's, it's, I'm 36 now. So five, six years later, I'm, I'm in it to win it. That, that's, a great, that's a great story. And I, I think Mike is one of the few people that I've come across who's had a very kind of steady development, it sounds like, from very early on in the faith. A lot of us <laughs> have come in through some strange channels, right? I understand the term Catholic guilt very well. <laughs> I was raised yes, with, yes. with a whole lot of it. So <laughs> it, it, it wasn't necessarily my positive inclination towards the faith as, as opposed to my sense of obligation. Yeah, so I, the, the, my, my experience would have been somewhat similar to yours, Jose, in that I grew up, my parents were Catholic, and I came from, my grandparents on either side were, were Catholic as well. But apart from being baptized, I really didn't have any formation in the faith. It was, again, I think, you know, there's a lot of people from that generation um, who had parents who left the faith in the late 1960s, especially after uh, going to university and that sort of thing. There was a real exodus from the, from the faith. I know that Archbishop Vigano would blame that uh, squarely on Vatican II, but uh, I think it was a lot more than that. And I, I don't think it was Vatican II at all, really. But yeah, so there's a lot of people who grew up with a, maybe some Catholic ideas or Catholic family heritage hanging in the background, but we don't really have a strong connection to it. But then over time, it you start to think about it, you start to recognize it, you start to feel an attraction towards it, and, and you slowly 
find your way back if you were ever there to begin with. And, and I actually, I find that really fascinating because I think this is, this is just my personal opinion, but that's, this is the, the path that I think, you know, we're on right now. We, we do have a lot of Catholics who have fallen away from the faith, huge numbers of Catholics, especially in North America and Europe. But I don't, I know a lot of people like to write off those Catholics and, and, and think of them as Catholics in name only or whatever. No, I, I think these people, there is that connection there still. These are people who often who, who have been baptized and who, or who um, at least have had some sort of experience in the faith when they were, were young and they can find their way back. It's, it's something that doesn't really leave you, even if it's just coming in from like, say, one grandparent. Like it, it can be, that can be a, a, a means to recovering your faith later on. Again, that's something that is very important to me that I, that I think we need to pay attention to all Catholics, anyone who has any kind of connection with the church and just try to slowly bring people back in. And it can often be a kind of painful process, right? Like you said, you were in and out and in and out and you go through all these difficult processes as you're, you're coming in, but then eventually something clicks and, uh, and you realize, yeah, I'm living a, a Catholic life now. So I think that's a path that that we can bring a lot more people onto if we do it gently and with patience. And I actually think that's a, something that Pope Francis is trying to do. I think that's the mentality that he's trying to cultivate. I don't think, I don't think Pope Francis wants a, a church of the pure, like a church of the, only the, the most serious and devoted Catholics. It's all Catholics. It's all people who have any connection to the faith. Bring them in slowly. But Jose, just to backtrack a little bit to college and to your 20s, you are a junior high history teacher, and you've taught junior high English. How did you discern that part of your life? I don't know. That is like the most vulnerable, confused age, I think, of any kind of kid. What attracted you to that? And what has that, how has that sort of fed your personal growth? And how has your religion been informed by that and informed it? That's a really good question. So when I was in high school, I had all these delusions of grandeur where I was in the drama club and I thought, maybe I'll pursue an acting career. Then I took psychology and I thought, ooh, maybe I'll be a criminal behavioralist. So I had all these kind of career goals that ultimately were pipe dreams. But I had a teacher, Mr. Cooper, who invited me to be a mentor, a tutor, for a program called AVID which is basically an, a program that helps first-generation college-going students build skills and habits that will prepare them for college. And so I thought, sure, I'll try this. Why not? And it was there where I really discovered I had a passion for working with students and being someone who can facilitate in the learning process. And through that, I realized this is actually a calling. This is something that is a vocation, really, for me. And so after high school, I had a friend whose mother was a, an assistant principal at the school where I work now. And she said, hey, there's this program called AmeriCorps, and they're looking for people to be tutors and people to, to work with the students. So I said, sure, I'll apply for AmeriCorps. And sure enough, I got the job, and I spent a year in AmeriCorps working with junior high school students. And my goal before that point was high school or even college. I thought there's no way I can work with little kids 
junior high school kids, file camps are atrocious. I myself <laughs> was a disgusting junior high school boy. I think all people have just horrible memories of junior high. It's the most awkward phase in human development. So I thought I'll do a year here and I'll figure out how to get to high school. Lo and behold, I did that year and I fell in love with junior high because they're so awkward, because they're just so gangly and they're prepubescent or mid-puberty. <laughs> the girls are giants, the boys are tiny, but they have deep voices and these little mustaches they're trying to grow. And eh. But for whatever reason, there's this part of me that's just attracted to working with the different, I guess, the ones who are forgotten. And that really resonated with what Pope Francis has been doing. And so I think that's one of the ways that has really connected me to what he has said and to the things he has promoted as Pope, going to the margins. I can't think of more of a margin in education than the students who are in junior high. Honestly, every time I say I work with junior high school kids, people just recoil. How, would, how could you do that? That's, ugh. So I, I did tutoring and then became, worked with special ed and I did all sorts of things, yard duty. Meanwhile, I was going to college and eventually, you know, I, I paid my dues, had my foot in the door and I ended up getting a teaching job at the school where I had worked for so many years. So you told us earlier, you're certified to teach in English and history. And so obviously the academic part of it is teaching kids about George Washington and the civil war, but I, I, only so much of that, I think, can get transmitted to a 12 or 13-year-old. Really, I, I would say that the goal of a middle school teacher is to really help guide kids through that maturation process. Is that the way that you understand it? That I don't want to denigrate the teaching material, but it's really a matter of getting them prepared for the next step in life, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. So when I teach, I, I do so in a variety of ways so that I'm touching on those students who are oral or students who are better at reading and learning that way or artistically or what have you. And so I do my best to imprint these important historical events in their long-term memory. That's part of it. That's a huge part of it because we have standards and we're given assessments and whatnot. But you're right. To, to a large extent, it's about the social-emotional connections. It's about the relationship that I form with these students over one or two years. And so I, I have students who've gone on to Harvard, and they become Gates, uh, what is it, the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Millennium Scholarship winners. Or they, they go to Cornell, and they become experts in agriculture. So I have these students who go on and do these great things, and they come back and tell me, like, hey, Mr. Rodriguez, I remember when you did this or, or that lesson with me. I had a student who, he works at Vaughn's around the corner from my house. And he's on his way now, I think, to uh, CSUMB, Cal State University, Monterey Bay. And he stopped me in the store and said, Mr. Rodriguez, I remember when, this was my first year of teaching, by the way, when you did a lesson on Roman culture and our group, did skits on gladiators and I was a lion 
attacking the gladiators and you let me use my cell phone to play lion sound. So there was this element of, yeah, he remembered, but then there was also, thank you for giving me this experience or I had a lot of fun performing this, this character in a skit. So it, it's, it's about creating memories and, and moments and building those relationships. Those are more longer lasting than the content, many cases. So now that you're a father and you have one of your own and you've seen through your years of teaching all kinds of kids that have come through. So I think in some ways it maybe will help you be more adaptable, but in other ways, I'm sure you might be scared out of your mind more than the typical new parent is. What, how do you think that's affected your perspective as a father? So I have these experiences working with students where they've, turned to drugs, they've been runaways, in some cases, tragically molested, because I have students who are immigrants, and so they'll have not just their nuclear family, but extended family. And with Zoom, I'm really noticing this because we're doing all of our lessons, distance learning on Zoom. You'll have a look into a student's home and there's literally a bed sheet stapled across the ceiling to divide one half of the living room from the other. And yeah, molestation, unfortunately, and abuse is a common consequence of that. So you have these students who have all these horrific traumas that they experience. And it, it really does uh, make me appreciate that my daughter can grow up in a safe environment. But it also makes me want to provide these students with the same love that I give my daughter. So I think I have been way more patient and way more loving with my students than I have before because I know that these kids are going through a lot and, and I have to almost put them in my daughter's shoes, if you will, and say, like, this was my daughter. How would I react? How fiercely would I protect this student if they were my daughter? And it's, it has really changed my perception dramatically. And again, I think part of that is being a father and a part of that is just my sense of Christian charity, of being a good witness to the faith without being explicit. I want to be merciful. I want to seek reconciliation. But I also want to hold my students accountable for their behavior and say, objectively, what you've done is wrong. Now, how do we go about bringing you back into the fold? So, for example, I had a couple of students who made the news in our small town for using some sort of drug, I forget, that knocked them out. They literally were unconscious on the floor of their home before school started. And one of them actually made it to school and was puking their guts out in the office. It made the news in our town. It was so horrible. But one of those students was in my class. It was like, okay, you recognize what you did was wrong. Okay, now how do we bring you back into the fold? Because they were looked at as outcasts from their peers. So it's that kind of work of reconciliation in the classroom with students and being merciful. It's, it's all a piece of being a father. It's all a piece of being a good Christian, a good Catholic. And that's what I mean when I say it's a vocation for me. I bring in all of my experiences into the classroom. It's not just, yeah, I have a degree and I know all the facts. It's how do I build relationships and how do I impart my values? I'll just say that I I found it fascinating to listen to your story and the connection between your role as a teacher and your 
newer role as a father, I can relate to a lot of these things. I work in education. I work with graduate students, not high school students or, or, or junior high students, but at the same time, I have a fascination with education. And yeah, and I'm, it's been this incredible learning process, becoming a, a dad and, and trying to figure out how to raise kids and instill Christian values, while at the same time, not overprotecting or you want them to understand the world. You want them to, um, but at the same time, you want to protect them a little so that they can grow on their own and receive the, the values that they need in order to make their way in the world later on. So yeah, that's all uh, stuff that I, I guess I've been wrestling with for the last 11 years since <laughs> my first one was born. But I'm wondering, how did you, how did you get into podcasting then? When did that uh, start for you? Yeah, so what ended up happening for me was I'm a very, okay, I don't want to refer to myself as creative, but I, I guess I will for the sake of this podcast. I am somewhat creative. So I, I, I spent years in college doing art classes, life drawing, landscape drawing, painting. I even did, I even did animation for a while. And then I was in theater for four years in high school. And then after high school, I worked in the civic theater. So I have a bit of theatrics to myself. So at this point with a child and everything going on in my life, I thought I need some creative outlet. I'm an avid podcast listener. Um, love your guys' podcast, for example. Other podcasts like Jesuitical, which by the way, Mike, that was awesome. Loved it. Great episode. Thank you very much. Yeah, they edited it heavily, thank you, thankfully. So <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was great. I, I listened to that podcast and other podcasts like uh, Catching Foxes, Clerically Speaking. So I got into the whole Catholic podcast thing. But I listened to non-Catholic podcasts like uh, WTF with Mark Marin, The Nerdist, The New York Times, The Daily, to other podcasts. And so I thought instead of just being a consumer of podcasts, I would like to maybe be a creator, a content creator of podcasts. And so my buddy Joel and I, we always have these long discussions about politics and religion, culture. And so I said, dude, why don't we just record what we're doing? We're already drinking beer. We're already boozing it up. We're having these discussions. Let's just have a microphone and uh, record. And that's basically what we did. But I, I structured it a little bit so beginning the beginning of the episode we have a discussion about what we're drinking and then we do what's called thread talks which is basically just a rip off of ted talk and i usually do like my catholic minute i'll talk about some catholic apologetics thing and then we move into the main segment of our show which is where we do an interview and i've had both of you on my show as guests and at the end uh, what are you watching or listening to this week segment and then we end there. Usually the show is about an hour and a half, but it's been a great way for me to have this bond with my buddy Joel. So it's a scheduled weekly thing for us, and we drink all kinds of different beers, so that's always exciting for us. But then also for, for, his, for his purposes, he's look, he looks at it as a time capsule, right? So he's having these discussions with me on current events, and he hopes that his children or his grandchildren will be able to go back and listen and, and hear what grandpa had to say about Trump or whatever other issue of the day there is. 
So it's, it's this thing where I get to vent, I get to be creative, I get to have beer with my buddy, and uh, just share this with our listeners. Yeah. Yeah, I have to interject uh, here because um, Paul talked about after he was on the show, Paul Fahey was on your show. He he sent me a, a direct message and he's, hey, Mike, I was just on Jose's show. I was on Conversations on Tap. And yeah, so like he had questions prepared and he had notes ready and he had topics lined up and he, he broke it into a bunch of segments and stuff. And he's like, we should really do that. And I was like, you can do that, Paul. <laughs> but no, I really admire the way that you take that craft seriously and you really want to provide an entertaining show and i think for me and obviously the core of your podcast is the conversation it is that window into uh, a good discussion that's got good energy that's entertaining that people want to listen to and when our podcast is working here i think that's when that's when the magic happens like you get the right mix of people you get some you get a topic that where the that spark ignites and all of a sudden the magic happens and i did some high school and college theater myself so i i know there's that magic moment where you feel like you you're on the stage and it's like all right things are clicking now and then somebody falls through a trap door or something that not when i was that never happened to me that kind of but at least it's like you can really tell when something's clicking and and that can be really satisfying like even if hopefully if you're going to spend seven or eight hours editing the podcast which we have commiserated about <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> one thing so podcast listeners those of you who have only listened or been guests on podcasts before when you edit a podcast and let's say the podcast is one hour long the editing process therefore is your starting point is one hour and so every yeah. time you pause that adds a few more seconds so i i don't know how depending on the guest and depending on how coherent it is and technical issues oh man it can really it's fun to do but man you can lose a day and and some sleep when that takes forever yeah so i'll i love all my guests i i only bring people on my podcast who i really want to talk to but sometimes i'll have guests who will have extended pauses and I'm like, as I'm recording, as I'm in discussion or in conversation with them, I think, oh, no, I'm going to have to edit these pauses down significantly. That's going to be more. So I'm editing as the conversation is unfolding. But yeah, the editing woes, the, the time you invest in editing and the sleep you lose. I'll publish my episodes sometimes at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, um, while my wife is asleep next to me. But to go back to, to David's question, another thing, I, I just want to throw this in there too, is there are elements of my podcast that are explicitly Catholic. Obviously, in my Fred talk, I have my little Catholic minute. But I think another part for me is I also just want to have normal conversations where I'm not overtly Catholic, but be able to show the world, hey, people who are Catholic can have reasonable discussions. People who are Catholic can like things on netflix <laughs> we're not all these puritanical guilt-ridden i don't know i don't want to say evangelical but that's the word that comes to mind where we're afraid of everything and i guess there are some who are like that who are catholic but 
just to show, hey, as Catholics, we're, we can also be just as normal and cultured as the rest of you. <laughs> it's funny, actually, because, yeah, I agree. I think it's a problem sometimes among people who are interested in, like, Catholic media, Catholic podcasts, or, like, Catholic Twitter and stuff like that. We, I think we are often, and I, I'm, I got to admit, I'm, I'm totally like this a lot of the time. We're that type of Catholic who can't stop thinking and talking about being Catholic. And sometimes it's hard to just get in that zone where you're just, just being a normal person without thinking like, how does this relate to faith? And how does this, you should, you should relate um, everything to the faith in some sense, but it's nice when it becomes just a, an internalized background thing that's not necessarily like right up front all the time. Like I often wonder, there's Catholic Twitter, but then I think there's so many Catholics who aren't on Catholic Twitter, like they're, they're, because they're not thinking about being Catholic all the time. Like they're off, they're checking, they're on like football Twitter or the latest movies Twitter or whatever. Like they're just in that world and maybe they don't think as much about the faith as we do or obsessive maybe. And I don't know, I guess probably everyone at where Peter is a bit obsessive in that way. But I guess that's probably something we got to watch out for is that, that like always always relating everything back to um, the faith in a really explicit way. So I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the idea of just being able to have you know, normal conversations that don't explicitly always go back to the church and the faith. But yeah, in, in a way, though, it's not explicit, but it's nonetheless informed by my faith. So if I'm talking about politics, yes. or the environment, or what have you, my conscience <laughs> has been informed by, and my, my character my morality has been informed by my, my Catholic faith, for sure. Yeah, that's it, exactly. And I think maybe it takes a while to, like for me as someone, I feel like I was a convert in a way, not technically, but I went through that kind of conversion experience. And yeah, when you're a convert to the faith, everything revolves around it and you're always thinking about it. It's always like foremost in your mind, or at least it was for me. And so it's there's been a, a kind of long mellowing process where I'm able to these things have just become part of my conscience and my way of seeing the world. And now I can be, I don't have to uh, be, again, like we were saying, don't have to be quite so explicit about um, relating everything back to the church necessarily. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm a, a nerd about this. I used to be really into like sports and pop culture. And now it's like my sister, when my brother, who's a priest, when we start talking about the faith he's she's like, you talk about bishops like they're baseball players it's like, who's going to get transferred to cleveland and who's going to get the who, who do you think's going to be on the next slate of cardinals and i i think to some degree and for me i had been working for the church for seven years and then got laid off and where peter is was my way to channel that energy because before that i wasn't like a super catholic nerd but i think once i started working for the church my faith has always been important to me but I channeled all of my like fantasy hockey energy into what's going on in Rome and which bishop is reaching retirement age. And, and so people have their hobbies. I need to remember, though, that aspect is not the faith. Certainly be informed by that. The message, I think some people are more fascinated, like when it comes to Pope Francis, by what is he deciding to do or where where is he going which all that's important but then really it's like what is he teaching us about our faith that's his job and he's doing it but if we're only saying oh he said this one big headline worthy line during this 33 paragraph talk about mercy 
we're not doing it. And so, Jose, I want to apologize to you because you credited me and and Renee Albert, another guy on who I believe is a Canadian, so we can blame Canada for that, David, for casually encountering each other on social media and following each other and maybe having some polite exchanges. And then, and then you got sucked into, for lack of a better word, although it might be the right word, the vortex of Catholic Twitter, Catholic social media, the polarization in the church. There, honestly, there is part of me that feels bad because not specifically about you, you got yourself into it. But really, it's like that aspect of the faith, like people should be able to practice their Catholic faith. The stuff that happens in Rome, the decisions that the bishops make, the things that the Catholic Church teaches, we can put, we have the ability to put those right into practice. Like we don't have to deliberate about whether this encyclical is going to say this or this. Once the teaching comes out, whether we choose to read it or not, it's really how well do we embody the gospel and, and live Christ's message. But being the curious person you are, being the history person you are, being the student of human behavior that every good middle school teacher has to be in order to survive more than 10 minutes. Um, interested in hearing your perspective as coming to that whole world, as uh, especially during the papacy of Pope Francis when you've got, and during this polarized time in our country, how you encountered us you said that part of your formation and learning your faith was like watching Taylor Marshall videos and that kind of thing. Like, when did it dawn on you that this division existed and how did you respond? What did you make of that? I'm just curious about that whole process. So basically, as I spent several years educating myself, reacquainting myself, because I did have good formation growing up through youth group, Catholic school, CCD, and just in the home catechesis. But by the time I was 30, that was in the back of my mind and the recesses of my mind and had some cobwebs that needed to be dusted off. So I wanted to reacquaint myself with Catholic doctrine, teachings. And so I spent years going through and on YouTube for the most part, just watching video after video never reading the comments because the comments are atrocious. So even then I realized, don't read the comments. And then at one point, I don't know what it was. I had stumbled upon Catholic groups on Facebook. And um, I don't know if I should name them, but basically I would go into these groups and be mortified, absolutely mortified by the vitriol directed towards Pope Francis. And here I am doing my best to educate myself, learn about doctrines and teachings, and I'm blasting away with these epic, multi-paragraph, just lengthy responses to these people who I was basically referring to as schismatics. And this was like a few years ago, a couple years ago. And I realized like, oh, this is not actually sinking in with these people. They're true believers of something completely different. They're calling Catholicism. And one of the guys in this, one of the groups I was in, his name's Gerald. I don't know if it's Gerald. Yes, I know Gerald. Good guy. So yes. Gerald invites me to this chill Catholic group on Facebook. And 
it was a breath of fresh air. Okay, here are some cool Catholics here. But that's where I countered you and Renee Albert, people like uh, Jen Morrison. And I encountered, uh, I think through there, I, I encountered uh, where Peter is, started reading articles that you guys were sharing. And I think I even would cite your articles to these other people in these other Facebook groups. And I forget exactly how, but I ended up following you, Renee, into Twitter. And I do recall actually having Facebook. I went back and checked my messenger on Facebook and you and I had some conversations even like a couple of years ago about like just the people we were encountering on Facebook. And I was like, thank you so much, Mike, for what you're doing with where Peter is. It's so necessary right now. But even then, I feel like the vitriol towards Pope Francis has just grown. And I don't know if it's because I'm on Twitter now, Catholic Twitter now, that I'm, it's more aware, I'm more aware of it. But I think maybe it's more public because like the, I think a lot of that vitriol on general Facebook is either on private pages or in groups. Whereas yeah. like in Twitter, it's like people airing it for everyone to see. Or I could just post some Pope Francis quote and some random set of acantist is going to come in and <laughs> accuse me of heresy or something like that. Like it's a different dynamic, although it can be equally bad but in different ways, I think, on both platforms. For sure. And I think with Twitter, because there's hashtags, you could do hashtag Catholic Twitter. And that is a dumpster fire being hurtled through the air via tornado. It is awful. And I go through Catholic Twitter, I'll click the link, I'll see what's trending. And it's like, how do you people refer to yourself as Catholic? This is absolutely what you're saying, absolutely anti-Christian, anti-Catholic, unbiblical, uncharitable, and yet they would consider themselves to be the pinnacle of orthodoxy. And it's, you're basically schismatic. And I have people who will say, technically, we're not schismatic because the Pope has to do some blah, blah, blah. I know. In practice, you're schismatic. I don't care about the like nuances of canon law that would you know, make you a schismatic. In practice, that's what you're doing. Because the Pope is the sign of unity in our church. I, I agree with you there. I've seen even people who might disagree with someone who you or I would say is a total schismatic because the canon law has, is no. Okay, yeah, there are canonical penalties for heresy, schism, and apostasy. But it's not just canon law. It's a sin. There's a sin of schism that you are fomenting and whether or not the Pope decides to formally or your Bishop decides to formally punish you for it, it, it it's a reality. Yeah. And no, I remember, I, I do remember encountering you as, I didn't know you were writing like paragraphs of defense of Pope Francis though, because if that was the case, I would have had you copy and paste them. If you've saved any of them, <laughs> there's some slow... There's some slow days. I don't know what... Okay, so you were following these same debates. See, I, I wasn't aware of whether or not I had actually corrupted you, but it sounds like you had encountered these people and you were like looking for, this isn't how I understand Catholicism, which I think for you and for me, it's there's always been this aspect of unity, this aspect of being Catholic as being part of the body of Christ. It's not subscribing to these 53 doctrines. Now, it's not to downplay the importance of doctrines, but 
once you're baptized, both you and David, what's the Hotel California? That's right, you're the Californian. You check in, but you can't leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there are bad Catholics, sure, but there are schismatic Catholics, there are heterodox Catholics. And I don't want to, it's not right to label people to their faces, but as general descriptors. But yeah, it's just this whole, but it's like, how can you have, and David wrote a piece about this, a popeless church of tradition? Like, how do you have a church without unity with the Pope? People have been trying to do it for the last 50 or 60 years, since, especially since Vatican II. So there's an aspect to it. So just to refresh on the timeline, so you had your return to the faith after Pope Francis had already been elected. Is that right? And for you, being of like Latin American heritage, did his election, since you weren't terribly involved or terribly practicing, but I guess still had your Catholic identity, what did that, did that speak to you in a particular way? Did that strike you? It, it really did, actually. Even though I hadn't really fully come back, I would still consider myself a Catholic. I even had Catholic stickers on my car. And uh, so I guess I was a cultural Catholic. I would still identify as Catholic if someone asked me. But yeah, so when Pope Francis was elected, it just blew my mind. I thought, aren't they normally in Rome or in Europe? How is it possible that they're elevating this person from Latin America, from this poor Argentinian nation, someone who speaks Spanish, no less. My Spanish isn't very good, but I can speak it a little bit. And so to hear these words from his mouth, really, it really did take me aback. Like, wow, this guy is different. He's fresh. He's bringing in something new to the church. And I, and I think that's one of those things I love about him is he also has that mission to bring back the freshness of the gospel, to throw the windows open of the church, as Vatican II was supposed to do, and let the Holy Spirit just rush into the church to bring in fresh air. Uh, and, I, and I really love that image of uh, that Pope Francis delivered, I guess, when he was giving a speech when he was still Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio, where he said that knocking is actually Christ knocking to be let out, <laughs> not necessarily to be let in. And I think he's really made that the central image, at least for me anyway, of his papacy, just letting Christ out. Just, yes, those books are great. The Summa is this iconic, epic work of theology. The doctrines are all good. All this is part of our intellectual tradition. But it means nothing if we're divorced from Christ. It's meaningless. And so I see these epic theological debates between people and the referencing canon law, etc. Who cares? I guess it's okay for some people to debate. That's fine. But for the average lay person, it should be about your encounter with Christ. And Pope Francis has really brought that back into focus. This concludes part one of our conversation with Jose Rodriguez. Part two of our discussion will be posted in the coming days. Once again, I would like to thank our Patreon sponsors. If you would like to help support Where Peter Is and Peter's Field Hospital, please click on one of the links to our Patreon site. Until next time, God bless 
and take care.